Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Hit the Lights podcast. I am joined by Gary. Hello, Gary. Hi, Pete. You all right? Yes, mate. Love it. And um, <laughs> God. And today we are discussing the industry of um, of water, a topic that Gary hopefully knows very well. Just taking this opportunity really to um, discuss the water industry, how you can get into it, what sort of work you can do, and the processes involved within. So, um, yeah, my first question to you, Gary, is how would you go about getting into the water industry? Oh, it's a, it's quite a challenging one. Um, I think primarily you want to obviously look at companies operating in the water industry. So you kind of got several tiers. So you could either go directly to a water company, which might be, uh, let's say, your Thames Water or Southern Water, your Anglian Water. Um, the, the next tier down from that would be your... Your tier one main contractors, so it might be uh, your Costains, your Skanskas, and the like, and you know other large corporation construction companies such as that. Then you would look at who might be subcontracting um, to those sorts of companies, um, and that's where I gained my entry into the water industry. Um, you know, looking. I'm working for um, a small electrical subcontractor who, you know, did the the control panels and control systems for the for the sewage works and water industry. Um, so those are probably the the obvious routes in. Yeah. So if I was a 17 year old, obviously leaving school, looking to get into the water industry, you just find a company that basically works within that. Yeah, I, I would have thought most companies who who do work in those environments are, are going to advertise it pretty heavily, um, obviously, because getting onto those sorts of frameworks and dealing with those sorts of clients, um, it's going to be pretty routine, it's going to be long term, um, and it's going to be, you know, regular uh, variety of work across those different work sites and clients. And then um, obviously being the water industry, is there much mechanical knowledge required? Um, it, it depends what sort of apprenticeship you're going to undertake and what sort of work the company does. Because if you get, um, you know, certain companies who may specialise in in the pipe work, in the pumps, and you know, providing everything wholesale, you probably have a more well-rounded knowledge and apprenticeship. Um, yeah, that would be going... like a typical M&E firm, for example. Yeah, exactly. And you do you get those in the water industry as well. Um, I particularly did electrical so we did all the electrical but in doing the the icas and the the software and the panels and and bits and pieces so what's like an that. ica sorry for those of us that don't know that's the instrumentation control and automation typically they have panels where you would control whether it's the process the plant bits of kit it might even be the whole work site depending on how big what you're doing is but typically it would be areas of process that you would control and typically that's that's where we kind of came in and i just picked up the mechanical as we went because you were controlling the process so you you naturally learned what the function was through looking at the process and instrumentation diagrams etc to know what you what the outcome was um yeah yeah so to compare that to my world i would say it's a bit like a boiler system where you have to understand the pump and the well, just the whole system, really, and how it's going to switch. You'd have to do the same with the water, so you can wire the control, really. Would you get involved with the design of the panels? Sometimes, yeah. Done done a few um, installations um, where we were doing um, aeration lanes at certain places as well. 
Um, so yeah, got involved with like the VSDs and the control systems of the blowers and bits and pieces like that. But yeah, no, um, occasionally, but typically they would farm it out to framework contractors that would provide a panel to a set specification um, that is kind of well set within the water industry as um, it's got layers of works informations and criteria that are set above British standards that you have to adhere to. I suppose that's typically what you do now, isn't it? You design the systems that then get implemented into the well, Tideway at the moment. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very, it's very similar. Um, Tideway in itself add another layer of complexity in that they put their requirements in between, say, the Thames, the WIMES that you have, which is the Water Industry Mechanical Electrical Specification, um, as above the British standards and the minimum requirements that you're supposed to meet. So like most things, it's full of challenges and conflicts of interest, probably. Yeah, the way they usually structure these these two sorts of contracts is obviously uh, like Thames, uh, for example, because that's primarily where I've done most of my work throughout the many years, is uh, they will have their works information requirements and that will sit contractually above water industry requirements. So if there's a conflict between them, you always would resort to Thames's requirements superseding. So you kind of just work down a hierarchy of contract. It's good that that's actually been established because so that times I go somewhere and everything conflicts and you just have to sort of pick the most logical route. Yeah, and it's probably you would there are obviously instances where you would say, no, you don't want that to apply because of the the engineering challenge or whatever you're trying to whatever problem you're trying to solve. Um, But then as you would with a basic certificate or anything like that, you you would have to document why you've uh, deviated and, and capture that appropriately. Okay. And then obviously these systems aren't very small normally. They're normally quite substantial, taking up hundreds and hundreds of miles. So I'd expect you to use a variety of voltages within that. Yeah, no. Yeah, voltages would you expect to see on a typical system? Um, I mean, if you're starting at kind of the source power, most of these, certainly the very much larger work sites have got their own HV transformers on site, um, you know, coming in at 3.3, stepping down to 400. Um, that's typically powering all your your motors, your pumps, the things you've kind of got on site um, powering the process. Um, then you kind of would step down maybe to some 110. You might see some instrumentation and control at 110. Um, and then you would probably step down further into the extra low voltage um, in terms of having, you know, four to 20 milliamp, naught to 10 volt um, instrumentation and, and bits and pieces like that throughout the process as well. So with that, then, how would you go about earthing stuff like that? I don't know, is there any requirements? Can you use TNCS or? Typically, TNCS is avoided. Um, typically, most of the when it's HV, obviously, we have earthing nests and everything's kept local to the site itself anyway. Um, so typically, yeah, you're, you're importing from your HV, uh, your earthing network. Um, so yeah, typically TT. Um, you then might have generator facilities, which then again, they have their own earthing nests. You've you probably got um, where you've got hazardous areas, you're probably using um, intrinsically safe instrumentation. So you might provide separate earthing for that. Um, there's quite a few different scenarios where you you need to consider, you know, fault paths and and bits and pieces like that. Yeah, I guess you'd also just mention the generators there that you'd probably have a UPS or some sort of system as a fail safe. 
Yeah, no, typically um, the way they support their networks is by multiple transformers. Um, so you can interchange and swap over uh, on, a, on a HV switching level um, to make sure you maintain your, your network ring or, or something like that on a work site. So you may have on a, on a large sewage treatment works, let's say seven areas of process, and you'll just have a HV network that runs um, to each section of process that supplies that part of site as that's the, the most efficient way of, of transferring power. So there may be the odd scenario where you've got UPSs for, for bits of kit, um, in particular, maybe servers or, you know, things that are monitoring the network, but not so much um, supporting plant on a, on a local basis. So do you have ever encountered problems with transfer of current through the earthing systems? Sometimes, yeah. No, typically, um, when I've been um, overseeing the install of, of earthing networks, I don't think we've ever really, really struggled. Obviously, the water industry in terms of like driving rods and requirements of measurements are much lower than British standards. So, you, you know, you're not allowed higher than 10 ohms. Um, and yeah, typically the, um, the British standard, which is BS7430, that's typically 20 ohms, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So typically, um, and then when you're when you're guaranteeing it's the main earth for the supply, it can't be higher than one. So that's why well, we do we do end up with quite high um, amounts of rods and nests and and things going into the structures when we when we build them. I manage that has to be um, monitored quite closely as well. It does through, throughout the construction. It has to be. Yeah, there's other constraints as well. Like you're not allowed to utilise rebar um, within structures. Um, because obviously it can uh, degrade the concrete and bits and pieces like that. So there's extra constraints there. Whereas if you were building a home, I know it's probably been talked about um, within the industry of foundation earthing and stuff like that. That's a bit of a no-no in the water industry. That's something that I was going to mention about the foundation earthing because the old anode cathode effects, obviously transfer of particles and all the rest of it, I can't ever see how you don't have a breakdown of concrete. Obviously, you've just mentioned it then. But when they come to foundation electrode, surely there's got to be a, some sort of mix or an insulating compound added to the concrete to um, reduce that effect. Yeah, I did I did see some articles a little while ago. I think it was um, fiberglass and other bits and pieces that you have to add um, to get it to be the right consistency to, to not suitably degrade. But... Um, yeah, so the foundation earthing. So that's typically um, stuff that you would avoid on the water industry because you don't want to break down the structures. Exactly. Uh, typically, we have to, you, you've got to kind of provide some whole life assurance and cost on how things are going to last, as well as what the, you know, the water industry as a minimum has said. They've, they've said that for a long time now. So it, I mean, it's Yeah, sorry. Something interesting that we've spoke about elsewhere before in that on Tideway you're saying that the the life cycle they're expecting for that is 120 years that's right yeah it's just an impressive thing that you know you have to think not only of the project in hand but you have to ensure that it's going to last a minimum of 120 years into the future yeah exactly so I mean it's not the case that that means everything has to last because obviously um, you know let's say hot dip galvanized containment um, you know heavy duty tray and ladder is not going to last 120 years so there, there is a pragmatism to it of what products are best suited and what will and won't be utilized to um, but if there's an alternative that say lasts 60 years so go for stainless steel containment why why not go for that then and yeah it, it saves a little bit more cost but if it's in a in a difficult maintenance area 
um, you're going to want to save your, your time and money later down the line by constantly having to go into a, a confined or hazardous space. Yeah, I mean, somehow I'd probably agree with that. You're better to spend a little bit more up front to reduce the cost of maintenance throughout the lifespan of the system. Exactly, and that's the fundamentals of whole life cost, isn't it? Exactly. All right, so moving on from that, then how would you typically control and monitor one of these systems? Because obviously you've got rising levels of water and pump speeds and efficiencies. So I don't know if it's worth I could take you through maybe what a process of a sewage treatment works looks like. And then I can talk about how you might look at the various controls of it. Yeah, sounds like it'd be helpful. Um, so obviously when you get sewage, you know, your, your, your lovely poo and uh, toilet roll, when it comes into a um, sewage works, it'll go through what's called screens. Um, so literally it'll just kind of essentially be filtered um, coming in, which is at a high level, which primarily might remove the loo roll and, and things like that to churn that, it out. Um, like chambers of different mediums to obviously take out the bigger stuff and it gradually gets finer. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. Like that experiment you did at school with the different pastas and rice in a, a colander and you have to go through the different holes and sieve it out. <laughs> yeah, but a smellier version. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure you'd get away with that at school. <laughs> Give it a go, see what the teacher says. Um so yeah, so you've got so you've got those. It then may work uh, work its way to what you would call primary and then secondary settlement, um, where effectively it's just letting it sit for a while and letting all the the solids effectively go to the bottom, and you would drain and remove what we would call the sludge out of those. So you do it once in the primary, obviously you do it in the secondary as well. Um, what happens with that sludge then? The sludge, so that would typically go off to potentially something like digesters. Um, so you, I think you're probably fairly familiar with these if you do um, maybe uh, home, oh, what are they called? Cesspits. Cesspit. Yes, cesspit. Yeah, so if you've got a cesspit at home, it's a sim- similar sort of process where um, the methane is is extracted as a gas out of the the sewage um and piped over to maybe gas compressors and then it might even be sent to say the national grid gas network um, so that methane i'm assuming that's where your um explosive atmosphere would come in yeah i mean to be fair the the methane the explosive atmospheres that's present throughout a sewage works there's nothing that isn't um explosive atmosphere yeah so these digesters my understanding of what you've just said is that it's basically a silo of poo and bubbling methane yeah, no, they do um, they do bubble pretty violently. Um, where I was previously, um, you know, if you were working in that area, you'd have to dodge flying poo occasionally, um, where it might bubble out of the side. It's the sort of thing. Um, uh, if you've ever seen the National Grid sites, you know the giant. Um, I call them balloons, but you know the uh, the giant tanks that fill with the gas that rise up and down. So you've got it's the same principle, but with poo and methane. Yeah, I imagine you have an awfully long shower half a day in a digester. <laughs> Luckily, I never got hit. Luckily, no, I never got hit. Hose me in the garden, love. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was the it was the smelliest part of of working on a sewage works. I must admit that bit you're not selling to me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise I was selling. <laughs> yeah, no, no, put put me in a loft any day. Yeah, the old methane bubbles of poo come flying at me. Yeah, I'll give that one a miss. I'm yeah. ill that day. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, the so after that um or sorry it might depending on the process you would then maybe take sorry can i just on the same thing on the digester because they fascinated me 
Is there any corrosive element of that? Um, there's probably corrosive elements to, to all aspects of, of dealing with water and, and sewage and gas. Um, obviously, most of the things are, are typically made of probably steel and iron and things like that. So, yeah, there there is a lot of corrosion that would be considered. But primarily electrically, you would deal with hazardous area equipment, which typically is like three, three inches thick um, PVC. Well, fair enough. It's just a question. Um, so yeah, so what, what it, might, it might go after there to an aeration lane, um, which is where you might have blowers um, and things like that, which will blow. The idea is to blow oxygen into it, and what they typically get is what you call like a, a nice skim on top of the water, which yeah. is which is the remaining crap that you don't kind of want in there. Um, a bit so like then you um, when you microwave milk. Yeah. A little less tasty though. <laughs> um, so that yeah, so then what you would do is skim that off the top, so you're kind of removing that extra layer of, of sludge because it would harden on the top, so it's kind of left in an aeration lane, and the water underneath it just keeps moving and keeps turning um, whilst whilst that that top crust, if yeah, you like. I think um, I've probably done something similar like this because I've done a uh, water treatment sewage system on a house before. Mm-hmm. And um, that had, again, the separate chambers of different mediums to clear it out. Then it went into a what they called an oxygen percolation ring. So yeah, basically had a pump which spun it all around, mm-hmm. oxygenated it, and then, like you said, pushed all the lovely stuff to the top ready for skimming. Yeah, no, that's exactly the same thing. That's, 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 yeah, that's what we call an aeration lane. So these... These aeration lanes are typically, if you were to look on like a Google Maps at a sewage works, those are the biggest structures that you'll see. Um, so they'll, you know, they may run for hundreds of meters. Um, you know, looking at them from from the air. And is that a sort of horizontal thing, or do they go into the ground? No, no, they're at ground level. So those are the those are the structures you can see, and you can actually see the sewage on top that would be skimmed. So there's a there's a Google Maps treat for you. <laughs> Just as everyone now frantically on Google Earth searching for aeration lines. Yeah, um, and then so from there it might go to um, let's say a UV uh, bay, which I've done started doing those. Those have become more common now since we've learned that you know obviously the the pesticides and things that were being dosed into water and stuff previously we're now not killing certain bugs um, yeah. um particularly those i can't remember the names of them but they had external shells um that were very hard to break down with the the chemicals that were being dosed so we now started uv um on on those as well as they go through the process just to ask a question because my dad used to have a uh, bit of pond kit uh, he had UV light filters, which I'm assuming is similar to what you did to kill the bacteria in the water. But then he, um, he actually upgraded it and put what they call an ozone filter in it. Mm-hmm. So is that something that they could use or does it specifically have to be a UV? No, no, there's there's ozone plant in there as well. It's all part of it. Yeah, you got it. You got it. Yeah, that's it. Sign me up. <laughs> I don't think um, digesters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so they'll go through that sort of process, and then probably the final one before it was to go off to a water treatment works would be um, a disinfection. So there would be some chemicals added and, and bits and pieces. So 
throughout all of those processes i mean typically what you're looking at is kind of level instrumentation um so you might be looking at um you know basic ultrasonics and things like that that just measure height and level of, of chambers so the ultrasonic um is what uh, we would probably typically use that would basically um send out a, an, an echo um it would hit the surface of whatever medium it was measuring so typically water because that's got good reflection and it would come back up and hit the the head of the device and that would be converted into a milliamp current rating so you know if it's the range of 4 to 20 if it was half full it'd be at 12 milliamps so you would know whatever tank or structure is half full so I've got so many questions on that. So the question straight away is it's a bit like um, how audio transfers, for example, in that it sends a current and then it's then transferred back into vibration to make a speaker work. So you're basically sending signals over electrical current. Yeah, effectively. Yeah, I can see what you, where you're coming from with that. Yeah, the transfer of medium. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the second one, you just mentioned the reflection rate. So to put that in the context of something that I know would be the emissivity of materials when you're doing a thermal image scan. If you have a reflective surface, you can yep. get misleading results. So sometimes you have to put black tape on, etc. So do you have to use different measurement equipment for different reflective mediums? Exactly that. Yeah. So if you were looking at something like oil or, say, sand in a silo, um, you wouldn't necessarily want an ultrasonic. It's only going to, um, it's not going to have the necessary reflection um, to be able to bounce back towards the device. So what you may use is something like uh, radar or laser, um, and they actually go through all the way through the medium, and it's the speed at which it returns that dictates the height of said material. Um so, yeah, you would have different instruments for different applications in that right. sense. So, basically, an ultrasonic would reflect, but a laser or a radar, it would have a different speed reflection rate depending on the sort of the opacity of material. Exactly. And what you would do is in the, in the setup of that um, instrument, you would set what material it's reading. Okay. So, again, like a different emissivity level. Yeah, exactly. So the other aspects, so level is obviously quite a common one when you're dealing with water and, and things like that. Then what we would typically have is uh, obviously you've got your motors and pumps. So you might be doing um, instrumentation to control their speed. So that that can sometimes be if it's a pump, let's say a flow meter um, or you might have flow switches. Um, so what, uh, on Tideway is the example, obviously it's the current event. What? sort of um, pump speeds or flow rates are you using um i mean it can vary from quite small to quite large um i think it depends what the application is typically if it's say storm pumps within um you know large cities like we're kind of doing up in london um you know the the pump those pumps are reliant on stopping the area flooding um and things like that so having that availability of of incredibly large pumps to do incredibly large volumes um you might be talking say 40 meters cubed you know that sort of range um you know you're talking Over HP what pump. period would that be second oh well wow. so big 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 amounts of of 
um, flow rates and stuff like that. Um, the slightly smaller ones that you might use, you know, they're probably 200 litres, um, 100 litres per second. It's that sort of yeah. sort of flow rates potentially. Yeah, tiny, tiny. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it, it's it's relative to the large it's, stuff. Yeah. yeah. So in domestic context, that's like emptying your water heater, your immersion tank every second. Yeah, and some probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, just on, so obviously then the control aspect of that is going to relate to your monitoring through your various mediums, be it ultrasonics, radar or laser. That's then speaking back to the panel and it's saying, right, up the flow speed. I'm assuming you've got some sort of pressure relief or overflow system as well um sometimes yes it depends on on the application but yes there are usually um there's usually pipework circuits and bits and pieces like that where we've got valve control typically you know all the valves are are on a comms network whether it's it's usually profibus but um I'm just you might assuming have... if everyone flushed the toilet at the same time for example there is a well, that's, that's yeah no that's typically so that's typically what um a uh, storm pump storm pumping station is um there'll be tanks and overflow tanks and stuff like that that captures it so that it can be processed later um and that's and that's in essence what tideway is you know if there was a sudden massive downpour of rain mixing with all that um effluent and and sewage the idea is that the tunnel catches it not the river and we don't have to overflow into natural resources so it's like a buffer vessel really yeah, exactly. And then it can actually be properly processed, which then you'd hope is more water that can be recycled. And in turn, it's not lost from the system as, as much as it currently is. Yeah, well, you know, we all are aware that water, fresh water at the very least, is going to become very important in the years to come. So why not start looking after it now? Yeah, well, yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, so like I was kind of alluding to, you, you, you'll have lots of valves, you'll have lots of different um, bits of kit like that that you might want to control the, the status of, the position of, and, you know, that that's probably where, like, the mechanical understanding comes into greater effect and the reading of the process and instrumentation diagrams and stuff like that to understand what what should be on when, um, putting, you know, is, is a go, no-go sort of situation. Yeah, I just imagine a huge sheet of paper um and it just says poo goes downhill <laughs> <laughs> it, it generally does but um yeah it typically it's not um necessarily just gravity gravity uh fed or, or stuff like that occasionally um if you've got long long stretches of pipe work yes gra- why not use gravity to your advantage um but it does mean somewhere along the line you, you're gonna have to put in a a pump to get it up to get it to go down you know it's one of those things okay and then um, within that sorry just uh are there any special locations you know in the back of a seven six seven one we typically have like bathrooms and showers and swimming pools but is there anything like that that comes into relation in the water industry um i mean everything like i kind of said before was ha- is hazardous area um you know you're going to be dealing with that which obviously has its own set of regulations and training and complex etc um so becoming knowledgeable in in those sorts of areas is uh is always key yeah i just didn't know if you had anything like um restricted gangways or anything like that you still uh, obey those sorts of uh requirements you know you would never go below say the 700 uh millimeter limit those sorts of things but 
um typically they are there's very rigorous um standards and and regulations that kind of sitting above bs7671 that would touch on what you should and shouldn't do and probably quite a bit that supersede even gangways yeah i was going to imagine that's a very low level document in the industry and uh just on that subject, something that popped to mind. Do you ever see any RCBs on the sort of water industry? No, typically not. Um, obviously, you don't really want to be losing um, key plant and and process um, for an earth fault. Typically, it's managed in in very different ways in terms of, I suppose, being fairly old school. You know, in terms of uh, putting conductors and um, installing earth networks and bits and pieces in, so that all the devices operate as they should in terms of whether it's a BS88 fuse or, or anything like that. Um, that's not to say RCDs aren't used, you know, building services, um, they have their place, you know, and things like that. And maybe even sockets in um, ICA panels, et cetera, as well. If you're going to plug in a laptop or utilise it in some way, it is always considered in that sense. I suppose a lot of it would be under the supervision of a skilled or instructed person anyway. Yeah, so in the electrical industry, probably similar to many other um, stringent industries, um, you're going to be dealing with approved persons or site supervisors. There'll be someone watching over your work. There'll be, you know, obviously risk assessments, method statements, reviews before you're even allowed to put a boot on the ground. Um, there's obviously scope of work and, and permits and, and all those sorts of things that come into play as well. So, yeah, so before you even can think about walking on the site, you're already going to be well managed and, and the safety insured both electrically and throughout the health and safety aspects of it as well. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Really, You don't want someone messing around with your multiple million, if not billion pound system if they well this, this is it yeah you can't you, you know you're going to have to phone the thames network um to say even even on small smaller satellite sites i'm about to isolate this you have to kind of let them know you know and all those sorts of things that you're going to be altering the process you're going to see signals failing you're going to see this you're going to see that i'm messing around with this to commission it or you know you, you have to kind of let everybody know what's going on so that they don't end up sending engineers down to question you as to why you haven't followed the protocol. Yeah, you don't just turn up and do the work. It's um, everyone knows you're going to be there, basically. Yeah, exactly. And like on Thames Water, you've got a couple of different permits before you've even allowed the permit to do the actual permit. It's um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so like if you want to work in an ICA, you might have to do a software release um, that typically, you know, would have to happen 12 to 24 weeks in advance. Wow. The code, the code is frozen. You nobody else is allowed to do work in that period um, that would change what you're doing um, there's things like um, TWOSAs which is um, a permit to uh, work on a premises you've then got a TOCOP which is a control of premises permit there's just so much you have to to jump through um, alongside complying all of these other standards as well so you know anyone kind of operating at a project manager slash supervisor level you know they'll have very good knowledge of all of these systems and protocols it's good so i imagine there's um, obviously they still sit through the net but there's very few incidents involving electrical safety um there are always still incidences um i've, I've heard of a few um i think probably the biggest one um that i heard of was many years ago now um which probably 
something good. But um, it was uh, an arc flash incident with with buzz bars. Obviously, a lot of the panels were dealing with, a, you know, a buzz bars and, and large distribution enclosures, etc. Um, so I think uh, somebody was b- very badly injured on a, a very large arc flash, uh, probably about 10 to 15 years ago. Um, I haven't heard any of any major incidences such as that, but you get the odd you get the odd um, safety notice that comes around, and it does it. They make its way around the industry, and whether it's you know Anglia and Yorkshire Water, whoever, it, there is a kind of a, a community of um, of engineers and and companies who walk work across all of them that distribute these safety notices, and so you, you do tend to pick them up um, as well as the technical ones as well, you know, um, that come through. Yeah, no, that's all good to know. I mean, it's nice to see that there is a process for safety in them sort of environments. And should we continue down the route into the sea, I guess, with the sewage? Um, yeah, so that's when it would, after disinfection, it would go over to um, the water treatment process, which I've not done as much of. But to kind of summarise it, there's obviously a heck of a lot more dosing um, and chemicals that get added and, and process treatment. To the water before it becomes drinkable obviously and comes to your home um so there's a lot of that that goes on at, at different water treatment works throughout the country those are probably slightly larger in, in terms of uh in terms of those you've then got the other aspects of them like the reservoirs that feed into them as well so when there are times of drought and whatever you know when you start getting your hose pipe bands which i'm sure we'll probably get soon um then you start eating into your reservoirs and and the stored water that's kind of been put away but not processed again like another buffer tank so um yeah i mean you're, ma- you're making it all sound very very light duty you know it is it's a bit of water <laughs> isn't it <laughs> put it in the yeah. toilet goes in a big circle comes back clean done yeah now, the other thing is um just similar to a bit of pool work i've seen recently and that with all the chemicals of the treatment and that i guess that you have obviously varying corrosion rates but not only in the metals but also in the plastics there will be yeah so yeah in in the water industry you are going to utilize your stainless steels your grp containment and and cabling and such like that so um i just wonder if you could just give a sort of basic overview of what tideway is and what it's um what the plan is what's it actually what is it so as i kind of alluded to it's to effectively when there's heavy rainfall in in london rather than say all the water that ends up going down the drains um going into the sewage system and stuff like that that would then naturally just overspill into the river because that's how the victorians set it all up with the basil jet sewage systems and uh, and stuff in london we're basically intercepting that to take it into a tunnel to take it all the way to east london um to what would be the beckton sewage treatment works which is the largest sewage treatment works in europe and it then processes everything, um, as as I've kind of just alluded to and talked about, on a gr- really grand scale. I've worked on that site for about a year, um, and it's its own town. It's that big. Oh well. Um, so yeah, you need a car to drive around it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So basically, then it's just splitting the poo and the rain away and stopping it from overflowing <laughs> into the river. Easy. I don't know why they haven't got you on the branding. You know, you've been... I mean, yeah, marketing <laughs> executive here. What we're doing is we've got a bit of pipe and we're not putting poo in it anymore. Yeah, you know, the poo and the water, different. Gone. Different now, done. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I feel like it has to be explained at that level to, uh, you know, me largely. 
That's oh, not right, trying yeah, to explain yeah. it to others. That's just me being like, all oh, right, then, we'll save any more then. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, to be to be fair, it, it you can simplify it like that. It is true, yeah. So what you mean is when I, when I flush the toilet, it doesn't just disappear into nothingness. Something actually happens with it. Unless you've got an evaporator outside, then um, <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> we'll just put it into a big hole. <laughs> you may have a hole. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I haven't seen your loo. I don't want to. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what's your, um, in your experience, obviously everyone's got different experiences, but what would you say were the best and the worst experiences you've had on the water industry? Um, the best um, has definitely been everything kind of I've just said. If you enjoy learning about process and instrumentation control, that's what I really love and, and enjoy doing. Um if I wouldn't say that's limited to the water industry um, in terms of what I enjoy, because obviously, you know, doing production lines, doing, um, you know, other things like robots and stuff like that, that's as just as fun. Um, but I do really enjoy um, the output that, of knowing that you're making a difference. Like lots of the projects that we've done, it's like Tideway, you know, that's making a difference for the future. Um you know environmentally that 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 was something that was that was really nice it's a nice outcome to do from the work that i've done because i've worked in other sectors as part of my job before and not not enjoyed it quite as much because you know that the outcome isn't necessarily something that's good for the future so th- there's that aspect the worst I would probably say being an apprentice coming into the water industry it's a steep learning curve you like literally all you I ever focused on was the bit of kit that was in front of me that I was being told to terminate do isolations for whatever it was I never truly certainly in my first two years understood the process of what was going on if someone sat down and explained it to you would you have the underlying fundamental knowledge to I think you can if you're in the right let's say mindset to want to understand that and are committing yourself to the industry in that way you will reap what you sow very quickly in terms of understanding the process um because there's there's some projects that i've done that really did open my eyes um where we you know creating larger aeration lanes so that it didn't overspill into local streams and stuff like that that at the time yeah i kind of understood vaguely but i didn't realize the environmental impact of what i was doing at the time so hopefully like that area is now massively regrown regenerated and you know has improved as a result of that that increased aeration lane that we we installed and the additional blowers and things that we put in and process and controlled so it's it's things like that that's rewarding um but coming into the uh, water industry it's a steep learning curve so I, i would say anyone even considering it or or working as part of it to now give yourself that that break to not um worry about every aspect of the process maybe just focus on focus on one aspect of it you know if you're just doing an aeration lane why what does the aeration lane do don't worry about everything because it can seem quite um a bit much when you're looking at you know like i say a small town that is is a sewage treatment works yeah. and you think jesus christ there's pipes there's tanks there's everything everywhere quite overwhelming it, it's very overwhelming and then when you start thinking about all the you know we've probably not touched on it much but you know the disinfection the chemicals the dosing 
you know the flow rates and all all those sorts of things that go together just to make everything work yeah, i can imagine the ppe in some of those areas are pretty extreme definitely obviously it's um moving to it wasn't when i first started in terms of it was it was the basic hard hat high vis you know you work, they would always start watering <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah I, that was that was the funny thing you turn up every day and the smell hits you when you open the car door it's it's a warm but then you get used to it throughout the day you get the occasional good pong um throughout the day that re-hits you but yeah. you forget about it and then you go home and you don't you've, you've forgotten that you've smelled so it i bet your missus loves you walk it going home every day smelling like a plumber <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, the other thing is the apprenticeships then. So do you get much um, much flack? Because obviously, like domestics, you're an apprentice, you're going in the loft. Are you an apprentice in the water industry? Are you going in the digester? No, you're not going to be quite doing that. But what you will be doing is metal munching. Yeah, OK. So lots of metal work, lots of probably like basic Meccano, really. Yeah, so yeah, you'll be doing the ladder work, the, the containment, the trunking. That, that'll that be your bread and butter for a few years. <laughs> yeah, the grunt. Then this is a wire. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Now yeah, exactly. Fire. Yeah, then it's typically like the long cable pull. Um, you know, oh, you've got to pull no, a cable 150 metres. So, right, you're doing that today. And you're doing yeah. it 50 times. Yeah, because you're going to pull in 50 long runs in a day. I, I can only speak from experience. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. On your own. <laughs> now, again, I can imagine you can use a variety of cable sizes just while we're on that. I know we're getting towards the end here, but uh, I imagine you're not using your one mil twin on earth. No, well, you, you right up from typically like 0.75 for your your control cables all the way up to um, 300 mil. That's a bit of Crocodile Dundee wrestling there. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah there's lots of shouting on when when those are being pulled in yeah definitely i can imagine no, okay well thank you i think that's been a, a good insight to the water industry it's certainly put me off for life anyway so uh, well yeah hopefully it didn't put everybody off <laughs> no no, no. no to be honest, like you say it's a rewarding process there's a lot going on i imagine the variety changes quite often so there's always something to look forward to and it's uh <laughs> occasionally you uh just have to go home smelling like a turd yeah, pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's like most jobs, really, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, pretty much, most jobs. Okay, well, I think that's a pretty high point to end on. So, uh, yeah, thanks for joining me, Gary, and I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks, Pete. Thank you.